Well, the traditional historical interpretation of the notorious Blackbeard and the pop culture Hollywood incarnations that it has begotten may be among the most enduring historical frauds of colonial American history. Much of what the public knows about this infamous pirate simply isn't true, nor is there documentary evidence to support it. To find the elusive truth of history, research historian and author Kevin uh, Duffus has delved deeper into the primary sources than anyone before to discover a new, more accurate account that reveals the identity, origins, and motivations of Blackbeard and his inner circle of cohorts. Today, in an all-new multimedia presentation, Kevin will lay bare the popular myths of Blackbeard's widely believed surname of Teach, his ferocity, his purported birth date, his many houses, his many wives, and his long-lost treasure, which some of you may have dug for in your backyards as kids. Kevin P. Duffus is a noted North Carolina author, filmmaker, and research historian who's made numerous historical discoveries. When he was 17 years old, he found, explored, and identified a sunken Confederate gunboat in eastern North Carolina. He hasn't been the same since. <laughs> in 2002, he solved what was called the greatest mystery of American lighthouse history and found the 6,000-pound 1853 Cape Hatteras Lighthouse Fresnel, did I pronounce that right? Fresnel lens that had been missing since the Civil War. His book, The Lost Light, A Civil War Mystery, follows the incredible 150-year odyssey of the lens. Kevin is also the author of War Zone, World War II off the North Carolina coast, about which he spoke to us last year. Some of you, I'm sure, remember that. And he also wrote the controversial and groundbreaking The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate topic of today's Banner Lecture. In his first career in television, he produced award-winning programs and documentaries in England, East Africa, Central America, and the Philippines. Last October, the North Carolina Society of Historians named Kevin North Carolina Historian of the Year. Even though he is a resident of the Tar Heel State, Virginia is his ancestral home. He is a proud descendant of the colonial governor, General Joseph Bridger, and Colonel Robert Pitt, captain of the Bristol Privateer Thunder, who settled in Isle of Wight County in the 1630s. So I guess our job today is to please give a warm Virginia welcome back to erstwhile native son, I guess, uh, Kevin Duffus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for this warm welcome. I, I'm thrilled. Uh, to be back here at the Virginia Historical Society, this venerable institution, and also in this city that uh, so much values uh, its history. Uh, yes, it's true, after thousands of hours of research and analysis, I have come here to announce to you that the Blackbeard that you know, know is a fraud. Yes, traditional historical accounts of the notorious pirate may be among the greatest historical hoaxes of colonial American history. I'm sorry to say that. I hope some of you will still like me when I get done today. Um, how often have we all heard that Edward Teach, a.k.a. Blackbeard, was the richest, most ruthless, and bloodthirsty pirate who ever lived? And, and in the summer of 1718, he arrived for the first time in North Carolina quite by accident. Well, perpetuating this pirate fraud or pop culture fantasies begotten by Hollywood and the many incarnations of, the, of Blackbeard you might see these days on uh, cable channel documentaries. Without fail, these influential media productions, often promoted as well-researched, depict the pirate as a ruthless, bloodthirsty monster with smoking, slow-burning fuses tucked under his hat. Not, not because there is credible evidence to support such a notion, but because it's what the public expects to see, and it makes good drama. Simply put, the history that most people know about the world's best-known pirate is mostly myth, based on the repetition of sensational, long-held assumptions, deficient scholarship, and pernicious falsehoods. The Blackbeard most people hear about or read about or see portrayed never existed. Was there a real Blackbeard? Well, yes, there was. But as uh, Paul said, his heritage, his motivations, his treasure, and his demise were altogether different than what you've been led to believe. 
And perhaps most revealing as to Blackbeard's true origins is the fact that a majority of his most trusted shipmates arrested in North Carolina and brought here to Virginia for trial were sons of Pamlico River plantation owners. The majority of those men were not executed contrary to what historians have claimed, and those who were hanged were not hanged because they were pirates. Most significantly, the true identity of a legendary black shipmate of Blackbeard's provides a crucial clue to the genesis of this genuinely American pirate story. While so many falsehoods have been woven permanently into Blackbeard's history, one hardly knows where to begin except maybe at the beginning. Let's consider the commonly accepted year of his birth. Search the internet for significant events occurring in the year 1680 in England, and under the heading of 1680 births, you'd find, <laughs> you would find the name Blackbeard the Pirate. Now, we can be reasonably sure he wasn't a pirate at birth, and we can make a wild guess that he wasn't born with a beard. But how do we really know that the infant who grew up to be the world's most famous and fearsome pirate was born in 1680? By the way, not a single thing in this news copy is accurate. So where does this stuff come from? Well, to find out, let's trace step-by-step step the 1680 birth date to its very source. A pirate author from Scotland wrote this of Blackbeard's age. From the descriptions of him provided by eyewitnesses, we can assume Blackbeard was a little under 40 when he died, which means he would have been born about 1680. This biographer offered no source for his assumption, and for good reason, I might add, because no eyewitness ever provided a description from which Blackbeard's age could be determined. Now, the author of Republic of Pirates wrote this of Blackbeard's origins, which begins to sound a little bit like t uh, political talking points. He was born about 1680 in or around Bristol, England. But this writer, to his credit, cited his source, a footnote in the book Blackbeard, a reappraisal of his life and times by Robert E. Lee. And no, uh, not the Confederate general, but the late dean and professor of law at Wake Forest University. And this is where we find the very source, indeed the very earliest instance in three centuries of written history about Blackbeard <coughs> purporting that his birth occurred in 1680 in Robert Lee's 1974 book. So what led Professor Lee to conclude that Blackbeard was born in 1680? Well, to find out, readers have to go to the back of the book and read his endnote, and most of them don't. And in that endnote, Lee confessed his analysis was, quote, based upon pictures found in books published in England shortly after Blackbeard's death and deductions from general accounts of his activities, end quote. That's it. That's the sole source of this important and enduring historical fact. Now, this woodcut by English mapmaker, engraver, and bookbinder Benjamin Cole of Oxford, England, appearing in the 1724 edition of A General History of the Pirates, is the picture that caused Professor Lee to conclude that Blackbeard was about 38 years old when he died, subsequently influencing most all succeeding authors and documentary producers, excluding your speaker, uh, to likewise claim that Blackbeard was born in 1680. For example, Smithsonian Channel's documentary, The Most Terrifying Pirate in History, said that general history of pirates is the only contemporary source that contains a picture of Blackbeard. Another popular book from UNC Press goes so far as to claim that the woodcut is a portrait of the pirate. Well, truthfully, it couldn't even possibly be a likeness. Because for that woodcut of Blackbeard and others of the period of Mary Reed and Anne Bonny and this one of Bartholomew Roberts to have been portraits created in the 18th century, well, the subjects presumably would have had to have sat or posed for the artist. In these images, the engraver never laid eyes on the pirates he depicted. And then, 20 pages after he claimed Blackbeard was born in 1680 based on pictures of the pirate he found in books, Professor Lee then admitted that all of the pictures of him were painted by artists who never saw him. <laughs> uh, despite this admission, none, none of the historians and writers who use Lee as their source for Blackbeard's birth date, and they all do, whether they cite him or not, that none of them share this fact with their readers. I think it's rather odd how historians who tout the importance of primary source research will turn to a crudely fashioned imaginary image to shape their conclusions. No doubt, the bulging eyes of this Blackbeard has influenced the caricatures of these impersonators and actors, but <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you that nowhere, nowhere in the official records does it ever say that Blackbeard had bulging eyeballs. Now, they don't have bulging eyeballs, but Hollywood's most recent portrayals of Blackbeard, last summer's John Malkovich in Crossbones, and this coming summer's uh, Hugh Jackman in the movie Pan, 
feature bald men with goatees as Blackbeard. Clearly, these hipster Blackbeards are styled for the millennial generation and not, not for us. Well, the 1724 general history of pirates is where Blackbeard's legend began. Because the book was published contemporaneously with the waning days of the great age of piracy, its veracity has gone unchallenged by generations of historians and authors who have accepted it as a sort of Bible of pirate history. For example, a pirate authority once said this in a Smithsonian documentary, the book is fantastic because it's essentially the original source document that tells us a lot about Blackbeard's character, his appearance, and catalogs his deeds. Well, far from fantastic and hardly an original source document, little of the information in that 1724 book, or actually two volumes, can be traced to verifiable sources by scholars. The author's sources are, to this day, in fact, entirely unknown. It is here where a long list of historical distortions about Blackbeard began and where truth merged with legend. For starters, Captain Charles Johnson wasn't even the author's name. And no, he was not Daniel Defoe either, as some have suggested. Only in recent years ha has it been postulated that Charles Johnson was likely a pseudonym for Nathaniel Mist, a former sailor, journalist, and publisher of London's Weekly Journal. Now, Mist was a fervent and notorious Jacobite. He was well known for publishing in London fictional histories to subvert the ruling Whig party and its German-born, German-speaking king of Britain. Furthermore, the British scholar E.T. Fox has found that general history of pi pirates was serialized in several newspapers without the permission of the author, and one of those papers later published an apology to Mr. Mist for stealing his work. Rebellious Jacobite attitudes were prevalent aboard numerous pirate ships between 1717 and 1724, and the two volumes of A General History of the Pirates reflect an obvious Jacobite undertone. In fact, it wasn't serendipitous that Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet, captains of ships with Jacobite-sounding names, Queen Anne's Revenge and Royal James, were featured prominently in the opening chapters of the Jacobite Mist best-selling books. In retrospect, general history of pirates was more a political allegory than history, using the defiant sea rogues as a mean to, means to ferment a rebellion against Britain's controversial usurper king a spirit of freedom and independence that would repeat itself six decades later in colonial America. Therefore, uh, accepting the book for what it was and not a fantastic dogmatic uh, Bible of pirate history so revealed by some authors, the monolithic foundation of Blackbeard's traditional history begins to rapidly fizzle away. Now, Blackbeard's identity and origins might be among the most enigmatic and enduring mysteries of early colonial American history. This seemingly unnavigable riddle has been made ever more complicated by three things. Now, as I've already said, the traditional story is based nearly on a nearly 300-year-old book with unreliable sources that has been inexplicably revered by pirate scholars. Secondly, this is a mystery buried beneath a colossal, deeply rooted legend that many writers, publishers, institutions, and fans unashamedly prefer to endorse and defend. We choose to embrace the myth of Blackbeard rather than feel the need to shatter it, a fellow author once wrote of my work. Now, the third reason historians have so far failed to unravel this mystery of Blackbeard's origins is that if one is so inclined, it requires an open mind and a lot of detective work. Many records have long since disappeared. All of the original documents pertaining to Blackbeard's interaction with North Carolina's government between June and November of 1718, including receipts, copies of pardons and vice admiralty judgments all vanished within weeks of the pirate's death, almost certainly under orders of the colony's proprietary governor, Charles Eden, if not by Eden's own actions. No doubt some information about Blackbeard's identity might have been gleaned from the testimony and depositions of former shipmates who were held for trial at Williamsburg, but sadly all of those records have been lost as well, likely in the Virginia Capitol fire of 1747. Even so, some courtroom testimony was copied and sent to North Carolina and preserved in that state's colonial records, and important, intriguing pieces of the puzzle can be found in those records. At the United Kingdom's National Archives, the most diligent researchers have transcribed, as have I, the fragile depositions of merchant captains, letters of colonial governors, including Alexander Spotswood and Royal Navy captains, like this one, composed aboard the 24-gun frigate HMS Lime anchored in the mouth of the James River 
in early 1719. But something many researchers haven't done is to painstakingly comb the most obscure deeds and estate inventories in eastern North Carolina courthouses, and it is there where some of the most remarkable revelations have been hiding. Well, what you cannot find any mention of in the original sources, but according to popular culture, is that Blackbeard was a prolific barrier of treasure. He was a builder of houses and castles. He was a real estate developer specializing in islands. And quite the Casanova, he had frustrated wives awaiting his return from the Isle of Shoals off New Hampshire to Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, to North Carolina, to the West Indies. And oh yes, there was purportedly a wife back in London too. Now this was one busy pirate. Uh, I, I think you get the idea. I suppose it shouldn't surprise me when people say they don't want to hear the truth about one of their long-held, dearly cherished legends, like the one about the headless swimming body of Blackbeard the pirate. We've all repeated our favorite stories so many times that we can't imagine that they're not true. Politicians and news, news anchors are certainly good examples of this today. Uh, this must be one of the great contradictions of all time, that despite Blackbeard's pop culture reputation as a monstrous murderer and repugnant rapist, the pirate's alias and his supposed surname Teach have been absurdly adopted by children's amusement parks, marinas, cigars, rum, sailing clubs, restaurants, and even tires uh, to capitalize on his marketing allure. Now just for a moment, imagine if other famous criminals in America were so memorialized, if in Boston there was a Boston Strangler Hotel. <laughs> now who would stay there? Or perhaps a Bonnie and Clyde Savings and Loan in Kansas City. Now, who would deposit their money there? And I apologize for this one, but how about a Jeffrey Dahmer Cafe in Milwaukee? Now, who, who would go eat there? So what else is wrong with Blackbeard's history as we know it? Well, according to the official records, Blackbeard the pirate never killed anyone. He never assaulted any women. He never made anyone walk the plank. Neither did he bury his treasure, although as you'll soon find out today, his treasure was ultimately buried, but don't bother to go looking for it. He also didn't wear... Uh, uh, eyeliner and mascara, which I know will disappoint uh, fans of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, strangely, it seems that when distinguished scholars turn their attention to writing about Blackbeard, they, for some reason, abandon all of their academic principles. For example, many writers in the past three decades have relied on Dr. Hugh Rankin's little book, The Pirates of Colonial North Carolina. This book is even cited in lessons plans for teachers offered by institutions like the National Park Service. Consequently, educating impressionable young people with information based entirely on fantasy. For example, Dr. Rankin wrote that romance entered the life of this arch pirate. He bought himself a fine home and his lavish display of fine silks, jewels, and gold so dazzled the eyes of one 16-year-old lass that she readily consented to become his wife. And Dr. Rankin continued, for the next few months, Blackbeard's life ashore became one of merrymaking and dissipation. He made friends with the neighboring planters by bestowing upon them gifts of rum and sugar. Entertainments in his home were on a lavish scale. Well, it's hard to imagine lavish, lavish soirees in this house in Bath that many people believe was Blackbeard's. Simply because a historic marker devoted to the infamous but fictitious Edward Teach was placed in front of this late 19th century red house, gullible people have been, come to believe that Blackbeard once lived here. I can assure you he did not. As for lavish soirees, such fantasies were hardly likely in the mostly tiny, log-hewn frontier cabins of early 18th century Bath. Now, as for a more scholarly error in the history of Blackbeard, it's often been stated that he joined the crew of Benjamin Hornigold at the end of Queen Anne's War in 1713, at, at what is commonly believed to be the dawn of the golden age of piracy. But this, too, is absolutely not supported by the official records. Now, this notion is perpetuated by many books, but nothing, nothing in the primary sources, not a word, says anything about Teach or Thatch or Blackbeard being a privateer sailing out of Jamaica or joining Benjamin Hornigold between 1714 and 1716. The only source for this assumption is, you might have guessed, Charles Johnson or Nathaniel Mist, if you care, General History of Pirates. The earliest official written mention of the pirate Edward Thatch does not occur in the records until four years after the end of Queen Anne's War. This was in a letter filed in London by a Captain Matthew Musson on the 5th of July, 1717, when he reported that in March of that year, five pirates made the harbor of Providence their place of rendezvous, including a thatch with a sloop of six guns and about 70 men. 
In fact, not just Edward Thatch, a.k.a. Blackbeard, but none of the notable captains of the golden age of piracy can be found in the records prior to 1716, except for Benjamin Hornigold, who prior to this time was little more than a petty thief in a canoe. In my analysis, in my analysis, it was not the end of Queen Anne's War in 1713, but the wreck of the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet that launched the careers of the best-known pirates of the golden age of piracy. When 12 heavily laden treasure ships on a voyage back to Spain were cast upon the beaches and shallow reefs of central Florida in a violent hurricane, gold fever swept the English colonies of America and the West Indies. Aboard these ships were millions of silver coins, gold coins, gold and silver bars, pearls, emeralds, and precious porcelain from China. 350 million in today's dollars, it's been estimated. Well, human nature being the thread that I believe binds all of man's endeavors throughout history, in the early 18th century, people did the same thing they do today when armored bank trucks accidentally spill hundreds of thousands of dollars on a highway. They become scavengers. More than $200,000 still missing after a, a spill from an armored car on the 24th of March 2010 in Columbus, Ohio. Headlines like these are the modern-day equivalent of the news in 1715 of the Spanish treasure fleet disaster. In fact, in late 1715, even without cable TV, the news of the treasure wrecks spread quickly, producing a mini gold rush. Within six months of the disaster, numerous groups of young men from New England, Virginia, South Carolina, and Jamaica all rushed to the coast of Florida to scavenge the beaches for treasure, like ravenous vultures, wrote paleographer Dr. John DeBry. Here in Virginia, Lieutenant Governor Alexander Spotswood was among those colonial authorities who recognized the opportunity presented by those wrecked Spanish uh, ships. He, he wrote to Earl Stanhope, Secretary of State for George I, I think it's my duty to inform His Majesty of this accident, which may be improved to the advantage of His Majesty's subjects. I think actually Governor Spotswood himself, if encouragement be given uh, to attempt the recovery of that immense treasure. Now, Jamaica's Jacobite governor, Archibald Hamilton, chose not to seek His Majesty's permission. In early 1716, Hamilton commissioned an out-of-work privateering captain named Henry Jennings and two well-armed sloops to sail to Florida to see what treasure might be retrieved from the ocean floor. Instead, Jennings found much of the treasure already on the beach, guarded by a small Spanish garrison, and the out-of-work privateering captain suddenly became a pirate. In no time, Jennings returned from Florida with something like 120,000 pieces of aid and other valuables, setting off a frenzy in Jamaica. A Royal Navy captain soon complained that he wouldn't be able to set sail for London because so many of his men were deserting to seek treasure in Florida, they all being mad to go a-wrecking, as he termed it. Well, beyond Governor Spotswood's inquiry and Hamilton's commission, records show that young men, as I said, from South Carolina and Rhode Island and Massachusetts all wound up diving the treasure-strewn coast of Florida. But what about North Carolina? Unfortunately, no written evidence has been found that Governor Charles Eden sent forth his own men like Governor Hamilton. Not that such a commission would have been put into writing, but there are compelling clues that he did just that. The fact is, in the decade prior to Blackbeard's arrival in Bath in the summer of 1718, the economy of the proprietary colony of North Carolina had suffered from years of constant political upheaval, punitive trade restrictions, drought, poor crop yields, deadly outbreaks of yellow fever, and brutal terrorist attacks by Tuscarora Indians without any support from their mother country. Consequently, the colony's inhabitants were desperate and many families had to pursue any means possible to survive. In fact, on the eve of the golden age of piracy, North Carolina had already earned a reputation as a rebellious refuge for smugglers, wreckers, and privateers, according to the king's agent in the colonies. It's wholly plausible that just as Edward Randolph foresaw some years earlier, Governor Eden's dire economic necessities in 1716 likely impelled him to be tempted to do all unlawful things, including dispatching young mariners to recover Spanish treasure without his lord's proprietor's permission. I mean, for example, why wouldn't he have? Governor Eden and his council must have been especially tempted since his lord's proprietors had recently informed the North Carolina Assembly that they would no longer accept paper bills of credit for the payment of property taxes. Only hard currency was the preferred method of payment followed by a less desired payment in commodities. And so it was that only a three-day sail from the impoverished settlements of Carolina, lots of hard currency could be found in Florida's shallow waters. 
This was 1716, a watershed year, the same year that many colonial American mariners were known to have gotten their piratical feet wet by absconding Spanish gold and silver from Florida's beaches. This is the same year that Bath, North Carolina's colonial capital, was approved as an official seaport town with a customs house. Blackbeard's confidant, Tobias Knight, at that time became collector of customs. And this was also the same year that Governor Eden relocated his official residence from the Albemarle area to the west bank of Bath Creek. But it was not just hard currency that was desperately needed by the planters of the destitute backwater settlements of colonial North Carolina in 1716, the burgeoning port of Bath and the surrounding plantations of the Pamlico River especially. Perhaps one of the greatest hindrances to the success of North Carolina's economy in the early 18th century was that the colony had very few indentured servants or slaves compared to South Carolina and Virginia. William Saunders, the editor of the Colonial Records, wrote that for want of suitable ports, Negro slaves were not imported directly into North Carolina, and the planters there were forced to buy from Virginia and South Carolina. And Saunders suggested that for this very reason, North Carolina had lagged behind in her development compared to her neighboring colonies. And so it happened that in late spring of 1718, the notorious Edward Thatch, AKA Blackbeard, arrived at what was then called Topsail Inlet, today known as Beaufort Inlet on the coast of North Carolina. Aboard his flotilla of four vessels, Thatch commanded 400 or more men, many of whom were strangers to him. Most were unruly, untrustworthy, unscrupulous, and all were expecting their share of the company's treasure. On Tuesday, the 10th of June, 1718, according to the records, Blackbeard ran the Queen Anne's Revenge aground on the bar of the inlet intentionally in order to downsize his company. <laughs> kind of like uh, uh, filing bank for bankruptcy. In a, in a swift and cunning deception, the bearded pirate and his closest and most trusted friends cast off as many as 300 of their unwanted shipmates, including the befuddled Barbadian wannabe pirate Steed Bonnet. And they sailed away with all of the company's fortune on a fast and nimble Jamaica-rigged sloop named Adventure. Now, a recent Smithsonian documentary explored the possibility that the grounding and loss of the ship was an accident and not intentional. North Carolina Queen Anne's Revenge archaeologists reached that conclusion because x-rays revealed that a number of the ship's guns were loaded at the time of the wreck. Their analysis is that because the ship seemed to be prepared for a fight, it must have grounded accidentally, conversely intimating that had it been an accident, the cannon breaches would have been empty. Oddly, though, this narrow archaeological interpretation casts aside a preponderance of contradictory historical evidence, including unambiguous eyewitness accounts. Four months after the Queen Anne's Revenge wrecked, a man who was present at the time, David Harriet, testified the following at Charleston's pirate trials. "'Twas generally believed that the said Thatch run his vessel aground on purpose to break up the companies. That said Thatch, having taken what number of men he thought fit along with him, he set sail from Topsail Inlet in the small Spanish sloop, about eight guns mounted, 40 white men, and 60 Negroes." End quote. 40 white men and 60 black men aboard that ship. Well, clearly, Blackbeard handpicked those 100 men whom he wished to accompany him on the next leg of his journey, a trip to Bath Town on the Pamlico River where he intended to surrender and accept the king's pardon from North Carolina Governor Charles Eden. So who were they, those 40 white men and 60 black men who were crowded cheek by jowl aboard that heavily laden 65-foot-long sloop that hastily sailed away from the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge. In recent years, historians have considered the racial makeup of Blackbeard's slimmed-down retinue of pirates, and they've expressed amazement at the diversity. Just imagine, 60% of Blackbeard's pirates were of African origin. What could this mean? North Carolina historian David Soselsky wrote that on marauding vessels like Teach's, African Americans lived among the rough-hewn fraternity of maritime outcasts for whom racial and caste boundaries ashore were not paramount. And in his often quoted scholarly article, Black Men Under the Black Flag, Kenneth, the late Kenneth Kinkor wrote, it would seem that the deck of a pirate ship was the most empowering place for blacks within an 18th century white man's world. 
For 27 years, Kenneth Kinkor was the historian for the Witta Project, the exploration and salvage of the world's only complete intact pirate ship, which was found in the waters off Cape, Cape Cod. Kinkor also served as the primary historical consultant for National Geographic's uh, traveling exhibit, Real, Pir uh, Real Pirates, featuring the Witta's treasure. This popular exhibit has enthralled and at the same time indoctrinated thousands of pirate fans across the nation. And in June 2013, before a packed auditorium on the eve of that exhibit's opening at the magazine's headquarters in Washington, D.C., a proclamation was made based on Kinkor's research that a third of all pirates were blacks, equals aboard on board the Witta. We have absolute proof of this, it was said. A third of the pirates during the golden age of piracy were of African origin. Now, it wasn't the first time that this claim was made. Seven years earlier, when Tampa's Museum of Science and Industry was forced by negative publicity to turn away that real pirates exhibit due to its lack of interpretation of the ship's slave history, the exhibit producer steadfastly claimed in an interview with NPR that every man aboard the widow was free. We're not inventing anything here. We're not romanticizing anything here. This is history. So is it history? Were black men aboard pirate ships treated as equals? Were a third of all pirates during the golden age of piracy black? Well, my research of Blackbeard's last days would indicate that this is not history. In fact, I would go so far as to say that some of these statements are a deception conceived to blur the unpolitically correct and unromantic realities that pirates were often engaged in the slave trade. Furthermore, my research proves that a majority of the black men aboard Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge were his treasure. With regard to the composition of the Witta's crew, Kinkor wrote in his article that 25 blacks had been uh, um, liberated from an unidentified guinea ship, and they joined the Witta pirates. Now, his source for this was a deposition that was filed just down in Williamsburg by a merchant captain named Andrew Turbot, who had been robbed by the Witta's pirate captain Sam Bellamy and his men off of Virginia's capes. But here is what Turbot actually testified. He the actual uh, transcription says the greatest part of the pirates' crew were natives of Great Britain and Ireland and 25 Negroes taken out of a guinea ship. Now, Turbert, who was there in 1717, said the 25 men were taken, not liberated. Now, Kinkor, who wasn't there in 1717, apparently replaced Turbert's taken out with the word liberated. Now, to me, taken out and liberated mean two very different things. On the flip side of this issue, British historian David Cordingly wrote in his book, Under the Black Flag, that pirates shared the same prejudices as other white men in the Western world. They regarded black slaves as commodities to be bought and sold and used them on board their ships for the hard and menial tasks. Well, that statement seems to be supported by my research of Blackbeard's black shipmates. And contrary to what was published in the February 2014 issue of Smithsonian, some of you might have read that, these questions are not such a mystery and the answers I have already found, not in ornate French and Spanish archives, but at the modest Beaufort County Courthouse in eastern North Carolina. And the answers are far more nuanced and more complex and more interesting than simply black or white. An objective historian would find it very difficult to believe that it was by happenstance that the notorious Blackbeard, purportedly of Bristol, England, accidentally wrecked the Queen Anne's Revenge and then blundered 60 miles inland to Bath, North Carolina in the summer of 1718 with the only thing the planters there needed more than hard currency. Blackbeard's destination is especially suspicious when uh, considering that records in North Carolina reveal, for the very first time since its settlement, large tracts of land along the Pamlico River were suddenly being sold for slaves within weeks of the pirates' arrival. And my search of hundreds of patents, deeds, and property transfers for Bath precincts spanning 20 years, there was only one transaction where a slave was listed as a minor portion of the bill of sale. Not until July of 1718, soon after the arrival of Captain Thatch and his pirates with their 60 black men does the deed book suddenly reveal or suddenly list real estate transactions, the sale of entire plantations for which multiple slaves were used as payment. For example, two weeks after Blackbeard's arrival at Bath, a mariner named Stephen Elsie purchased a 188-acre tract, including its livestock, near Bath in exchange for two male Negro slaves called Pamtico and Pungo. 
Well, since Elsie's name doesn't appear in the records prior to July of 1718, and he was in possession of slaves, I think it's reasonable to conclude that he must have been a member of Blackbeard's crew. But this Elsie was not yet done acquiring property. On the 9th of September that same year, he and a man named James Robbins, who was also another newcomer to the Bath Book of Deeds, both of these men identified as mariners, purchased Governor Eden's former 400-acre plantation with its stately house and barns and stables, kitchen, kitchens and livestock for the price of three slaves named Barsu, Lawrence, and John. No currency at all was used in that transaction. Now, this human treasure may have been apportioned among the 40 white pirates in shares based on a man's role aboard ship, much the same way some pirates were known to have parceled quantities of gold, silver, and jewels. However, it's difficult to know whether or not this formula applied to the human plunder of Blackbeard's company. Now, Blackbeard, the records intimate, owned four slaves. On the 14th of September, 1718, he traveled 52 miles from his temporary base at Ocracoke Island to Bath in a small boat across the sometimes dangerous open waters of Pamlico Sound. Blackbeard was accompanied by just four black men who served as his oarsmen and sailing crew for what was a clandestine midnight meeting with the colony's acting chief justice and customs collector, Tobias Knight. This event is well documented in North Carolina's colonial records and for my money, few episodes in Blackbeard's story gives us more intriguing clues about his relationships, his authority, and his true motivations. Those four blacks accompanying Blackbeard were named Richard Stiles, Thomas Gates, James Blake, and James White, and they were most likely his personal servants. And unlike the previously mentioned slaves Pamtico and Pungo, who were named for North Carolina rivers, these four men had Christian given names and surnames. They obviously were able to speak English, and they were able to manage a sailing vessel across Pamlico Sound. This suggests to me that those four men had been with Blackbeard a long time. They were unlikely to have been slaves taken from the Concord who could not speak English and who likely had no maritime skills. Two months later, those four men's fates were, were sealed along with one other unnamed black crew member when they actively participated in the Battle of Ocracoke. According to 18th century British law, Blackbeard and his men, regardless of whether they were free men or slaves, committed high treason for bearing arms against the king col king's colors, and for that reason, and not for being pirates, the survivors of that engagement, two whites and five blacks, were later hanged at Hampton, Virginia. Not Williamsburg, as uh, clearly indicated as I found in the log of the HMS Pearl, which had been anchored in the mouth of the James River. It clearly said those men were taken to Hampton. Now, more of the Queen Anne's Revenge's slaves appear in the records. William Howard, the ship's quartermaster and whose father owned a plantation near Bath, had two slaves with him when he was arrested here in Virginia. And at a hearing on the 27th of May, 1719, Tobias Knight also admitted to having two Negro men whom he purchased from two former pirates who had gotten their pardons and headed north. And Governor Eden also admitted to be in possession of six slaves either given to him or sold to him by members of Blackbeard's crew. So it's pretty clear that the Queen Anne's Revenge's 60 black men had not been liberated by Blackbeard. In fact, I've located as many as 21 of the pirate slaves in the records. But what of the other 39 black men who were aboard the Sloop Adventure when it sailed away from the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge? An exhaustive search of the records so far fails to reveal their fates. The absence of those 39 slaves from the records for me is rather conspicuous. They weren't sold, they didn't escape, they weren't freed, so where did they go? It's possible that a few of those slaves may have been taken north by the newly retired members of Blackbeard's company who had, were not inhabitants of North Carolina, although the more likely outcome was that the majority of those 39 slaves were assimilated into the plantations of the families of Blackbeard's crew members who lived there at the, along the Pamlico but who were not later apprehended and therefore their names do not today appear in the records. Otherwise, why did Blackbeard and his pirate company choose to sail to North Carolina in the first place? Why did they not scuttle the Queen Anne's Revenge in St. Helena Sound, accept South Carolina Governor Robert Johnson's offer to surrender and be pardoned and receive the King's Act of Mercy? And why didn't they sell their slaves at Charleston, where the slaves almost certainly would have brought much higher prices than at the diminutive and commercially destitute town of Bath? 
There is substantial evidence that for Blackbeard and his inner circle of cohorts, uh, Bath was their destination all along. Now, this missing chapter of pirate history isn't something that you're going to find in any other historian's book or, your, or on roadside historic markers or in National Geographic's Real Pirate Exhibit, nor will you likely be informed of this at various historic sites or museums, but I believe it's an important part of America's colonial heritage. For 18 years now, every summer diving season, the world's media have celebrated the recovery of dozens of cannon and tens of thousands of artifacts recovered from the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge. These are things that archaeologists call the material culture of piracy. Headlines like these captivate the public's attention, but despite their enormous size, cannon and anchors frankly only tell a small part of this story. Year after year, these press reports totally ignore the cargo of flesh and blood transported by that famous pirate ship. This is what I call the human culture of piracy. The black slaves from the Queen Anne's Revenge were human beings, the forebears of many generations of Eastern North Carolina's African-American community. The fact is the memory of the Queen Anne's Revenge's human cargo has been obscured by the opaque shadow of Blackbeard's last vet, uh, vast legend before and long after his death. Those slaves arrived at North Carolina aboard what someday would become a famous pirate ship, not knowing their future. They were unable to control their destiny. They were at the mercy of their pirate masters. And 300 years later, their maltreatment persists. Their history has been intentionally buried by treasure hunters, eclipsed by fairy tales and folklore, and ignored by a media and a public, mesmerized by pop culture iconography and big cannons and anchors. Because the truth of their history doesn't fit neatly into the politically correct and romantic pirate narrative promoted by some historians and institutions, their memory, their history, is still enslaved after all of these years. Now, one slave among the 60 black men who arrived at Beaufort Inlet aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge in June of 1718, no matter how tall he was, stood above all the rest. The slave history remembers as the infamous Caesar is one of the most important keys to Blackbeard's mysterious origins. But before I introduce you to the real Caesar, here is what popular culture in some museums say about the African uh, pirate. Now, Caesar has been featured on the Hallmark Channel and the Travel Channel. There's an island, believe it or not, in the Florida Keys named for him. And the African pirate even has his own Wikipedia page detailing the facts of his colorful history. The truth is his mythical persona, his piratical prominence, his fictional fame have grown to preposterous proportions. Now, if any of you know the story that originated in general history of pirates, Caesar is the pirate whom traditional accounts have always said that Blackbeard had trained as a youth, and who prior to the Battle of Ocracoke on November 22, 1718, Blackbeard had entrusted with the desperate task of igniting the adventurous stores of gunpowder in order to destroy the ship and all of the men on board in the event that the pirates were defeated to prevent their capture and the indignity of being publicly hanged. But on that pivotal day, Caesar failed to accomplish his mission, likely because when the moment arrived, it was too late. Blackbeard and his, most of his men were already dead. For me, more remarkable is the unspoken intent of Blackbeard's request. He, he essentially asked Caesar to commit suicide on his captain's behalf. Now, I ask you, why would an ordinary crew member, a slave at that, be willing to do such a thing? Why would he kill himself for a white captain who was supposed to be from Bristol, England? And when and how could this English pirate during his brief two-year career as a pirate have raised Caesar, who it is known was 23 years old in 1718? Well, beyond general history of pirates, the origins of this legend are somewhat obscure, but no one has written more authoritatively and eloquently about the black pirate than a retired English professor at the University of Florida. Caesar, he wrote, was an African chief known far and wide for his huge size, immense strength, and keen intelligence. European slave traders in Africa tried many ways to lure him on their ships with the hope of capturing him, taking him to the New World, and selling him for a handsome price. And according to the legend, this keenly intelligent African chief was eventually lured aboard a slave ship by a shiny ticking watch, after which he was clapped in irons. Then the ships quickly set sail for the English colonies, but off the Florida Keys, Caesar's slave ship was wrecked in a hurricane. But with his immense strength, he broke free and became a castaway. Then from logs and canoes, Caesar 
somehow began to prey on passing ships, and before long, he became a wealthy pirate. The legend also says that in his spare time, Caesar somehow amassed a harem of 100 women on his Florida island. Yet despite, yet despite this successful enterprise of Caesar's, the wonderful weather of the Keys, and the, you can only imagine the round-the-clock carnal pleasures afforded by his harem, uh, he decided to give up his paradise and to join forces with his hero Blackbeard in 1717. I think perhaps the exhausted Caesar simply needed to get a break um, <laughs> from his harem. But according to the legend, the black king of Biscayne Bay joined forces with Captain Edward Teach because of the chance to serve with one of the most notorious pirates in history. Unfortunately, this statement falls apart because Captain Edward Teach hadn't become history's most notorious pirate in 1717. Now, variations of this so-called history have been published in numerous books and magazines, and it's also celebrated at a popular Florida mu pirate museum where unwitting vis vi uh, visitors are charged a substantial admission to learn fallacious facts. Uh, the hucksters of this historical Bilgewater would make P.T. Barnum proud. So let's now distill fact from fantasy. Now, clearly influenced by Charles Johnson's general history of pirates in 1724, historical accounts have always stated that Caesar was convicted and hanged at Williamsburg, Virginia, along with 13 or 14 other pirates, depending on who's counting, following a trial that began on March 12th. But again, this is not entirely accurate. For example, the autumn 1992 issue of Colonial Williamsburg Journal stated that in March of 1719, we saw 13 pirates meet their end on the gallows along Williamsburg's present Capitol Landing Road. Of course, I've already proven to you or shown to you how all of those uh, executions took place in Hampton. And in a letter to Lord Cartwright dated on the 14th of uh, February, 1719, in which Lieutenant Governor Spotswood attempted to explain his justification for invading his lordship's colony of North Carolina, it was made clear that the trial of Blackbeard's white pirates had already occurred and that sentences, or pardons, had already been determined. Nevertheless, no matter which of these books you read, the authors all toe the party line and claim that Caesar was hanged at Williamsburg. But according to 295-year-old estate records in North Carolina's Beaufort County Courthouse, that is simply not what happened. Caesar wasn't executed here in Virginia because I found the notorious black pirate's name, age, and value in pound sterling, along with a slave named Pompey in the September 15, 1719 estate inventory of Blackbeard's trusted advisor and confidant, Tobias Knight, which was compiled and appraised shortly after Knight's death at Bath. And according to 18th century probate law, Caesar had to have been physically present at the time Tobias Knight's inventory was prepared, so we know that the 24-year-old slave was not hanged in Virginia the previous spring. In fact, Virginia's Lieutenant Governor Spotswood may have alluded to Caesar's release in, from custody in a letter, unfortunately, without naming him. He wrote that of the seven that have received their pardons, a condemned Negro, and he too was a person of very notorious character for his piracies, had his money restored to him uh, because there was no proof of it of being piratically taken. By process of elimination, Spotswood had to have referred to Caesar in this letter because I've accounted for the fates of all of the other black men who had been captured at Ocracoke. The probability that there might have been two different black Caesars, one owned by Tobias Knight at Bath and one from Blackbeard's adventure who was hanged at Williamsburg is statistically unlikely. However, this has been suggested to me by a fellow historian. The argument that there could have been two Caesars is even more improbable when it can be shown that there were a dozen men on Blackbeard's final crew whose names matched the names of men hailing from Bath and the Pamlico region before and sometimes long after they had been pirates. In fact, Colonel Thomas Pollock, who was a former governor and Governor Eden's legal counsel, described these men in a letter as inhabitants of North Carolina. Does anyone really want to defend the possibility that there could have been two sets of 12 men sharing the same names, occupying the same small community at the same time? So in the absence of any controverting evidence, I think it can be reasonably inferred that there was only one black Caesar and he was pardoned under the generous terms of the King's second act of mercy as intimated by Lieutenant Governor Spotswood. The best explanation is that while present at Ocracoke, it was proven that Caesar was actually owned by Tobias Knight. Further, I believe Caesar must not have actively borne arms against the King's men and thus he was not a subject to a charge of treason and instead was eligible for the King's pardon. 
And now, for the first time, my research proves that Caesar had been a resident of Bath Creek for at least 10 years before he became known as a very notorious character for his piracies. And a crucial clue helping to establish Caesar's origins before he became a pirate slave is that Tobias Knight, his estate inventory, also lists another slave named Pompey, age 27. Both Caesar and Pompey were chattel associated with Tobias Knight's plantation at the mouth of Bath Creek, which is known today as Archbell Point. Tobias Knight patented that Bath Creek plantation in 1716 when he was named collector of customs, but it is believed that he may have for some years already occupied that property as a tenant. That 300-acre plantation had previously been owned by the landgrave Colonel Robert Daniel, originally of Barbados and then Charleston in Goose Creek, South Carolina, who arrived in the northern colony during the summer of 1703 following his appointment as deputy governor of Carolina. Now, Daniel first resided in the Chowan Albemarle area, but in 1705 he was removed from, from his post by Governor Nathaniel Johnson following a quarrel that uh, Daniel had with the colony's Quakers. It was at this time that Daniel relocated to Bath, almost certainly because of a woman named Martha. When Daniel purchased the plantation at the mouth of Bath Creek, by the way, the deed was signed by someone named Knight's secretary and was witnessed by Tobias Knight's future wife, Catherine Glover. Four years later, Daniel decided to get out of Bath and move back to Charleston. And before his departure, he transferred ownership of his plantation and most of its slaves to his common-law wife, Martha Rain Wainwright. And amidst a flurry of property transactions, Daniel gave to Martha a number of slaves whose names appear in the deeds of gift, including two named Pompey and Caesar. Now, this important piece of evidence proves that the slaves Pompey and Caesar, I believe also, by the way, were probably brothers, who were both listed in Tobias Knight's estate inventory in 1719 and were associated with Knight's plantation at the mouth of Bath Creek, were the very same slaves owned 10 years earlier by Colonel Robert Daniel at the very same plantation. As a result, it's reasonable to infer that Pompey and Caesar must have been acquired by Tobias Knight from the Daniel family at the time he purchased that plantation in 1716, even though that deed, unfortunately, is no longer extant. Now, this can only mean that Caesar was a resident of Bath in 1716. And remember, this was the same year that young colonial American mariners were rushing to the treasure-strewn beaches of central Florida. Consequently, I have concluded that Caesar must have begun his piratical career from Bath in 1716 uh, in the service of other Pamlico River men, possibly including Edward Thatch, the future Blackbeard, likely with the uh, initial purpose to salvage the Spanish treasure wrecks off Florida. In fact, Caesar, I believe, might have been Tobias Knight's investment in the salvage enterprise. How else, how else could this slave have returned to North Carolina two years later aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge? having by then earned a reputation, according to Spotswood, for being notorious for his piracies. This would further imply that Caesar participated in the capture and transport of other slaves in order to deliver those men to Bath. Caesar, along with Blackbeard's slaves, Stiles, Gates, Blake, and White, were likely responsible for managing and communicating with the inbound slaves from Africa, caught, captured on the Concord, which became the Queen Anne's Revenge. Now, this new interpretation presents a more complex and, I believe, a more truthful portrayal of black men on pirate ships, contrary to the noble but flawed theory that pirate ships were an empowering place for blacks within the 18th century white man's world. The historian Simon Shama once said that history ought never to be con confused with nostalgia. It's written to uh, not to revere the dead but to inspire the living. History tells us to let go of the past even as we honor it, to lament what ought to be lamented and celebrate what ought to be celebrated. And so while we lament, lament this slave history, we should also honor and celebrate the fact that upon their arrival in North Carolina and along the shores of the Pamlico River, Blackbeard's slaves and their descendants contributed mightily in building a new world by becoming accomplished and proud tradesmen. There were blacksmiths and carpenters, coopers, cobblers, fishermen, road builders, pilots, watermen, ferrymen, dredgers, shipwrights, brickmakers. Some later uh, descendants even became lighthouse attendants and lifesavers. They were the ancestors of families that more than likely survive to this day in eastern North Carolina and beyond. As for Blackbeard and his white cohorts, birds of a feather flock together, we've all heard that proverb. The rules of human nature, and now, 
Even DNA, according to last summer's issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, unambiguously affirmed that Blackbeard had most likely surrounded himself with and traveled with his most trust trusted friends and townsfolk, and that he himself must have been a member of this Bath Town community, a colonial American by birth and not a native of Bristol, England. And at the top of the list of reasons why I'm convinced that Blackbeard and his companions launched their adventures from Bath in 1716 is the fact that upon their return, Governor Eden issued them a royal pardon for which they were not eligible. And by doing so, knowing that they had committed sensational acts of piracy outside the terms of the pardon during the preceding months, including the burning of a Boston ship near Honduras and the blockade of Charleston, both of which these incidents were reported in the USA Today of the time, the Boston newsletter, uh, Eden became an accessory to acts of piracy, which in accordance to an act by William III was punishable by death by hanging. Does it seem likely to you that Eden would have taken such a risk for strangers, no matter what the payoff would have been? And most conspicuously, all records pertaining to the pardons and Blackbeard's transactions with the government of North Carolina mysteriously dis disappeared in December of 1718 within weeks of Blackbeard's demise. When weighing the balance of evidence, the, skips, the scales tip heavily on the side of Blackbeard's origins being from colonial Carolina and not the long purported Bristol, England. They have no evidence there, by the way. Uh, in favor of Bristol, we only have Nathaniel Mist's reference in the second edition of General History of Pirates, as well as a feeble argument I've heard from one Blackbeard authority that because Bristol has been assumed to be his birthplace for so long, it can only be the truth. On the side of being a Carolinian by birth, there is the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge, the pardon from Governor Eden, the inner circle of crew from Bath, the economic need of the Pamlico region, the delivery of the slaves, Blackbeard's apparent familiarity with the waters, the letter from Tobias Knight found in his possession, the destruction of incriminating records, and the relationship and residency of Caesar. And there are other intriguing clues, and one especially in particular uh, that I'm sorry, but you'll have to discover by reading them in my book. I learned that from Nathaniel Philbrick, I apologize. Uh, my revision of Blackbeard's history, not surprisingly, is unpopular among certain circles of archeologists and treasure salvers and historians, muse museum curators, pirate authors, and publishers. Nevertheless, I am, the I am un unapologetic as the party crasher who pulled back the curtain to expose one of the greatest historical hoaxes of colonial American history. In its place, however, I think I have found an elusive truth of our colonial history. Admittedly, an unresolved, still evolving truth, but decidedly more realistic than the long-standing popular fable. And to emphasize this elusive truth, last summer I commissioned this watercolor by a highly acclaimed artist. I call these men the Pamlico River Pirates, and this painting depicts the moment that they arrived at Bath on or about the 1st of July of 1718. This was the day when Blackbeard and his inner circle of cohorts concluded their odyssey, surrendered to Governor Eden, disembarked 55 African slaves, and in many instances re rejoined their families who lived along the banks of Bath Creek and the Pamlico. Now, 16 years later, one of these men, the reformed pirate Cooper turned assemblyman and churchman Edward Salter, helped to fund the construction of North Carolina's oldest standing brick church, St. Thomas Church of Bath. This is a fantastic true pirate tale that I'm sure you will never see in swashbuckling movies or on cable channel docudramas. Uh, perhaps no less remarkable, that former pirate, Edward Salter's grandsons, included three heroes of the American Revolution and a three-term governor of Tennessee. And so in perhaps a tarnished, less heroic way than the Revolutionary War's prison ship martyrs, Blackbeard's Pamlico River Pirates might also be remembered in Walt Whitman's words. Once living men, once resolute courage, aspiration, strength, the stepping stones to thee, today, and here, America. Indeed, it's rather remarkable to consider the possibility, the seeds of our nation's genesis, the rebellious spirit of independence, may have been planted literally in the, in the descendants of some of those former sea rogues and their wives the founding grandfathers and grandmothers of our nation. Thank you. Thank you.
Absolutely. No, I understand. I understand. Any questions? Yes, uh, an interesting character, uh, whichever version. But uh, uh, a tangential question, if I may. One of the romanticism things are pirates making folks walk the plank. Is there any truth to that at all? Well, I, f I flashed that image up on the screen and I, with a little subtitle that said, this is taking too long. Um, no, there's, there's no, I, I have been unable to find a single primary, primary source reference to pirates walking the plank. It simply would have been impractical. Um, I, I, I wish I could I explain more, but. Uh, yeah. I had the good fortune of uh, sailing in the uh, Hampton Yacht uh, Club's Oktoberfest uh, regatta in October. And as we were coming out of Hampton Creek, everyone on the ship said, or on the boat said, that is the point right there where Bluebeard's head, I mean Blackbeard's head was uh, mounted after the trial to scare other pirates out of Hampton Creek. Did you hear anything during your research or see anything regarding that aspect? Uh, there, um, the only written evidence regarding Blackbeard's head, and there was um, in um, the log of the HMS Lime, which was the frigate that was anchored in the James River, indicated that when Lieutenant Maynard returned from North Carolina, he had hanging from the bowsprit Blackbeard's head uh, to present it to the government of Virginia. Now, I do also want to, at this moment, uh, dispel the notion that they had that head hanging under the bowsprit the entire time they came back from North Carolina because it was six weeks after the battle um, before they got back into the James River. So I'm sure they had that thing tucked away somewhere uh, and heavily scented or whatever. Um, no, as far as the... Um, all of the other references to his head being placed on a pike staff, I mean, it, it, it sounds reasonable. Um, I can't uh, vouch for the, the rest of the story as that it was taken to the, uh, the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg and fashioned into a, a drinking bowl. Uh, uh, that, that's a tremendous, it's a terrific legend. In fact, um, a, a, a New England um, uh, antiquarian and uh, uh, a collector of, of uh, relics claimed to have uh, acquired that uh, silver-plated skull from Raleigh's Tavern, which was originally Blackbeard's uh, head. And um, he donated it to the, to the Peabody Essex Museum. And it has gone out on a traveling exhibit from time to time. And I've always said, I think they, they hope that it's not returned. Um, <laughs> because uh, I have found evidence, as other historians have, that that, uh, that particular skull was appropriated from a high school biology class and painted with silver uh, radiator paint. Um, <laughs> But, um, but that point, in fact, you know, this, this is a serious subject as well. Um, those hangings did take place, uh, the hangings of five black men and two white sailors from Blackbeard's crew did t take place there at Hampton, and the bodies would have been buried at the, at the low tide line, so the tide would have washed over them. Not much of a tide there, I don't believe, but uh, uh, they are probably still located there. In fact, I think the Hampton Museum believes they have some bones of African Americans that were found in, while they were doing some work there on the waterfront. But um, that's all I have to say about that. Yes, although we've uh, fairly well dispelled the myth about walking the plank, we do seem to have fairly credible evidence uh, from your presentation about the practice of marooning, uh, presumably off somewhere off the coast of Moorhead there on the banks. Uh, and one account says that Steve Bonnet actually came back and rescued some of the marooners. That's uh, correct. Do you have any credible evidence of that? that yeah, no, that's that? absolutely correct. And um, it's, um, it's interesting to note that the uh, Steve Bonnet, of course, was, you know, eventually captained, you know, the other half of Blackbeard's crew or the greater number of Blackbeard's crew. They were captured in the Cape Fear River uh, a, few months, uh, a few months later um, and uh, by South Carolinians led by Colonel Rhett. Um, and uh, there was a, f a very fantastic trial that took place in Charleston with very thoroughly kept uh, uh, trial records. Uh, and uh, you can access those, those uh, records and the testimony of all of those pirates online. Unfortunately, the trial of Blackbeard's surviving crew members, uh, which did take place in Williamsburg, and there was a trial, uh, and I, don't, I, don't have I didn't have time to get into this in the program, and it's in my book. I go into great detail. Frankly, the whole purpose of Spotswood going in to try to capture Blackbeard was simply to recover uh, credible or written evidence that could 
proved that Governor Eden was in collusion with pirates, but not just to unseat uh, Eden, but to actually overthrow the Lord's proprietors. There were a number of people in North Carolina who were very frustrated that, that the Lord's proprietors had been unable to help them during their conflicts with Tuscarora Indians. And uh, there was an effort, very secret, quiet effort, to try to have North Carolina return to royal authority, just as happened, same thing happened in South Carolina. In fact, it happened a year later. And uh, the guy that they had in mind for being governor of the royal colony in North Carolina was the brother of the, the new royal governor of South Carolina. And so that's what all that was about. Um, but um, anyway, the, the, uh, yes, the marooning took place almost certainly on Bogue Banks, which is, if you're know, familiar with the area, it's where Fort Macon is today. And um, again, it's too bad we don't have those trial records from Williamsburg because uh, a lot of this wouldn't be uh, hypothetical. Uh, we would know some very specific things. I'm, I'm a Howard from Ocracoke. <laughs> no, and I have a question. No, that's great. I'm, I'm 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 pleased that you well, are. Well, actually, it was my grandfather. But um, is there any truth in the old family legend I have heard since I was a little kid that the the uh, William Howard, who was the quartermaster, was the same William yes. Howard who bought Ocracoke? Well, just like all of this, you know, it's there's going to be some skeptic who's going to say, well, you can't really prove it. But uh, William Howard. I found William Howard, a William Howard of Ocracoke. Uh, he bought the entire island of Ocracoke in the, in the 1750s. And uh, in Hugh Williamson's um, uh, 1812 History of North Carolina, he, at the back of the book, he refers to some of the oldest residents of North Carolina and how remarkable the, the, the colony or that state must be for, for longevity because he mentioned a William Howard of Ocracoke who in 1794 was 107 years old which would have made him 32 years old in 1718, which would have been in the ballpark. Uh, and there are no other William Howards, by the way, in this time. That William, Howard, the, that William Howard, by the way, had a father whose name was Philip Howard who lived on the Pamlico River near Bath. And, uh, and his father was William Howard. But anyway, there's, I would say, very, very credible evidence, but I know that someone's going to say, well, you can't prove that there weren't two, two William Howards, one the pirate, you know, but there are just too many connections. But yes, you can you can be confident that you we have a descendant of the Blackbeard's quartermaster uh, here in the theater. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.